0: We have a story here uh, in Matthew that um, you might miss the lesson and you might even be offended by this story if you come from a culture that's extremely painfully entitled. An entitled culture might read this like, oh, that's not very nice. And boy, I don't know if I like what Jesus did here. Entitlement is kind of a funny thing. We have been raised in a culture that pretty much we're entitled. Uh, you know, we, we, we are way more than entitled. And in the latest, earliest generations that we have are, are perhaps more entitled than others. Um, and it's happened even in the last several generations. You know, I think the last generation that was really not entitled to, to kind of an nth degree was the depression era. You know, some of our great grandparents or grandparents who lived during those times, uh, entitlement was not as much of a thing back then. Uh, but uh, it sure has become that, the more comfortable we've become. But we're, um, we gotta watch out because um, the word entitlement, it just means belief that one is deserving or entitled of certain privileges. Um, and the Bible teaches the opposite of that if you approach the story kind of with that in mind, that we all deserve death and hell, you know, everything after that becomes pretty good. Uh, After death and hell, eternal death and hell and suffering and and hell for all eternity, you know, things look pretty bright after you start improving from that. Uh, And that's kind of what's gonna happen in this story and uh, part of the thing that we have to keep in the back of our mind. And it's the story of the Syrophoenician woman, or you might call it the woman, a Canaanite, who was from Tyre and Sidon, uh, which is another way of saying it, um, but was not uh, from Israel. Um, Jesus makes his way up into what is today Southern Lebanon. And uh, we kind of have him doing this little story on the outside of outside of Israel. Uh, and he's with the, this woman who's a Gentile. And we're gonna see a good object lesson in this study that it's gonna be helpful. So let's take a look. Um, You know, uh, uh, we're gonna talk about who this woman is and get into it here in a minute. So it's chapter 15, let's start. uh, Chapter 15, verse 21. It says, then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And she said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Now, the initial read of this, you're like, why did Jesus sort of do that? Like, um, you know, it seemed like he was kind of mean, even sort of rude to this poor woman. What's going on there? And, and why would Jesus do such a thing? Uh, well, this is where entitlement, you know, none of us are entitled to Jesus doing any good thing uh, to us or for us. We, we don't deserve that. So we have to start with that. And we're gonna find out that this woman and what she ends up having to do to get Jesus to do, uh, you know, help her. Uh, it, it actually has more to do with Jesus wanting to teach her some things and to have her reveal certain things and even let her express a faith that is so profo- uh, pro- profound. Uh, it, it's, it's actually kind of amazing coming from a Gentile woman that lived in Lebanon. This is an amazing story, really. So who are these people? First of all, let's talk about who this woman was. She's a Canaanite, the Bible says. The Canaanites were inhabitants of Canaan the land of Israel today, and even greater region of parts of Jordan and Lebanon. The Canaanites lived in all that region. And the Canaanites were made up of a mixture of a bunch of people. And in the greater group of Canaanites, there were all kinds of ites that you read about in the Old Testament. The Hivites, the Jebusites, you know, the Parasites, the Flashlights, all those different groups of people that lived in that land. And there's, all, there's tons of those names if you read your Old Testament But the Canaanites were mentioned over 150 times in the Bible, so they're kind of a big deal. The Canaanites uh, are really uh, a wicked, idolatrous bunch of people that descended from uh, Noah, from the grandson of Noah, Canaan, uh, who was the son of Ham, if you remember that whole story. Um, And Ham was a people that was cursed. But the people were extremely wicked. And this is where some people really get frustrated with the Bible. I can't believe the Bible is into ethnic cleansing. You'll hear people say that. Well, read the Old Testament, pastor. God told the Jews to wipe out the Canaanites entirely. And the Amalekites were another group that were part of the Canaanites. Wipe out and kill all the Amalekites. Who does that? You know, and why would God allow such bloodshed in the Old Testament? And this is where we have to take up God's perspective. Um, humanity is sinful and the, the, you know, the, the grotesqueness of humanity is profound. And the Canaanites were given 500 years to repent of their evil deeds, worshiping these pagan deities and uh, being enemies of God's people. But more importantly, worshiping you know, Moloch and Baal and all these others. Um, these, these gods and goddesses where they worshiped made them, led them to do horrifically evil things. They were so messed up with their sin, the Canaanites were, God says, I'm going to utterly wipe you off the earth. You're you're done. I'm gonna use my people, the Jews, to wipe them out. And you say, well, that's not very nice. But the problem is the Lord, it would not be nice to let them continue. That's something we have to remember. If, If we believe God is righteous, we also believe God is gonna deal with people that are doing horrible things. Well, what kind of horrible things were they doing? Horrible things like laying their babies on altars that were sizzling red hot to, uh, to Moloch and Chemosh, these gods of the Canaanites. Um, they'd worship Baal and others and do all these horrible sexual orgies in the groves and in the high places. And like the Canaanites were so sexually perverse and um, in fact, historians tell us the Canaanites had uh, you know, more sexually transmitted diseases than uh, we had back in the 1980s. Now, I think we've surpassed them as far as uh, numbers of sexually transmitted diseases. But it was because of the rampant, open sexuality that was happening that was perverse. And uh, the people were like a rabid dog. I call it the rapid, rabid dog syndrome. You know, if you have a nice dog named Yeller, um, that uh, gets rabies, you got to put the dog down, because the dog becomes dangerous to all the other dogs and people around it. And if you remember the old Yeller movie, man, it was—I remember as a kid, I hated that because the old Yeller was this beautiful, what was a golden lab or something like that, and uh, the, the poor kid had to shoot his dog because he got, you know, rabies. And um, but it was part of life's lessons, you know. I'm still in fetal position uh, in the corner after watching Old Yeller. Uh, it's such a sad thing. But in the same way, humanity had become so perverse and sinful, the Lord said, I've given these people 500 years to repent, but they would not. And so he said to Joshua and the people of Israel, wipe them out completely. Now the problem is, the Jews didn't do that. They didn't utterly destroy them. Uh, Stories, you know, like King Saul fighting the Amalekites and, and the Lord said, wipe them all out. But he kept some of them alive, like the king, Agag, He left Agag alive and somewhere along the way, more Amalekites came along the way. Saul was not obedient to wipe out the Amalekites. Does anybody remember? Who was the ultimate one who killed King Saul? Anybody? An Amalekite did it, remember? Saul tried to commit suicide. If you read the last part of 1 Samuel and the first part of 2 Samuel, you can put the pieces together. Saul tried to commit suicide, but ultimately uh, an Amalekite came along and did him in finally. And he went and told David, and, uh, and David said, how is it that you killed the Lord's anointing? It's a whole other story. But it's interesting to me that the very group that Saul was supposed to wipe out is the one that ultimately did him in. That's kind of interesting biblical trivia for you. But the Canaanites were a sick people and the Lord said, time's up. And the Jews didn't completely wipe them out. David uh, was probably the peak of wiping out the Canaanites, but many of the Canaanites were either still alive, but they'd scattered to places like Lebanon and the outer regions around Israel. So the Canaanites during the time of Jesus were still around, just, uh, and they were called Canaanites or like this woman who is from uh, Tyre and Sidon, uh, all that. This picture behind our graphic uh, this evening is, is a picture from uh, ancient uh, ruins of, uh, of Sidon, of the, of the place of Lebanon. But you know, it does beg the question, if the Lord says to a group of people like the Canaanites, time's up, you know, you're know, evil and debauchery has gotten so bad, you're done. Do you ever wonder when that's gonna happen to the United States? Because as somewhat of a history buff and a person who studied a lot about the Canaanite culture, the Canaanite people, I'm kind of wondering, is our culture in America worse than that of the Canaanites? Oh, Brett, how could we be worse? That's ridiculous. We're not slaughtering children. Oh yes, we are way more, way more than the Canaanites. Well, Brett, that's the unborn fetal tissue. Well, that's not what the Bible says about it. The Bible calls it a child. Remember when John the Baptist leapt in the mother's womb? The Bible says the child leapt in the mother's womb. The Bible calls it a child and it is a child. And also, if you're from Montana, you just voted that if a, a abortion is botched and the child lives, which happens, I guess, more often than we'd like to admit, um, they're not responsible to care for that baby. They just leave it there and let it die. Even though it's born alive, uh, the, the Montanians voted that it would be cool just to let that baby suffer. Uh, and if, if you're thinking of those people in Montana, well, the Oregonians were way worse than the people in Montana, Like we're all just a bunch of wretched, miserable sinners. And the problem I see is when is the Lord gonna say time's up? And one of the things you have to remember is the Lord, you know, a lot of people in in modern day churches, they, they like to remember the goodness of God and his holiness and greatness, kindness, compassion, but they forget about his holiness and his righteousness. They forget that God is a judge and he's gonna pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And the churches that failed to bring that part up, there's gonna be a lot of surprised people when God says, time's up. Time's up. There is a point of no return. And the Bible says that happened with the Canaanites, but the future, it's gonna happen globally. There's gonna be a global time where God says that's it. So it's kind of important for you to realize, well, that's, he's the, the same God today, yesterday, and forever. He, he doesn't change. And people make that mistake. But be that as it may, as I look at our prideful, arrogant, sinful ways as we march down the streets waving the rainbow flag uh, that used to be a a sign that God gave us that we've hijacked for perversion and sexuality that's way over the top, I wonder when God's just going to go, you know what? Um, If I don't deal with America, you know, I might have to, you know, feel bad about taking on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, like, seriously, this is, we're, we're, I wonder when that time, when the Lord uh, is gonna intervene, be that as it may. All that to say, the Canaanites were not very popular among the Jews during the time of Christ. They were the people that they knew they should have wiped out, but didn't. So um, Canaanite people were particularly hated uh, by the Jews in the first century. And now we see in our uh, text here, you know, in verses 21 through 28, we see here this kind of story um and it, and it can seem sort of at first glance like a confusing story and then and then you have Jesus sort of referring to this like almost like the woman's a dog question did the Jews call gentiles dogs anybody yes yes they did it was a very horrible term it was like almost a um it was almost like the worst thing you could call someone in Bible times. See, in Portland, Portlandia, we, like, we all think, I like to think of myself as a retriever. Uh, you know, we're all, we're, we're all dogs. Dogs are just as important as we are and, and all that stuff. Uh, it's a little different. But in those days, if you were called a dog, well, it, it also depends on which word you used for dog. And this is kind of important in the story. This is one of the little nuances you miss in the English translation of this story. Um, and I don't want to make too big a deal out of this, but um, the word that's used in the Bible in in kind of a brutal way is the word that is translated dog, and it's kuan. Um, It it means a more wild dog or a street dog, capable capable of violence and filthy habits. Now, this is something you and I don't know as much about in America. Now, if you've traveled in the third world countries, which I've done a lot of, um, you'll see the kuan dogs, running around. In fact, there's some countries, like when I was in Burkina Faso, you didn't see any pets, dogs. They're all wild dogs running for their lives, fearful for their lives. And they're kind of scrappy and, and skeletal. And uh, the reason they run for their lives is there's no food in Burkina Faso. People were starving. And so uh, dogs you know, make a nice taco, you know, or whatever. Like uh, they make a nice meal. And so the dogs in Burkina Faso are running around scared for their lives. Uh, have you guys ever seen this? Any of you guys been to third world countries? It's a whole different kind of dog that is in those countries. And that's the word. There's a whole other word for that. We don't even have the word for that. Um, but we would call it like a street dog or whatever. Um, so that's the word Quan. And the Bible employs that uh, in for you note takers, Matthew chapter seven, verse six, uh, Luke 6, 20 uh pardon me, 16, Luke 16, 21, um Philippians 3, 2. Do you remember when Paul called those Judaizers that were wanting to have all the Gentiles be circumcised, all the men? Drop your drawers, sharpen your knives, we're gonna circumcise you guys. And Paul said, You guys are dogs. That's what he called them. And he used this word, kuan, in the Greek, which is kind of like you're just a, a worthless street dog. Like that's a it's an insulting thing to say. Um, but um non-Jews uh, according to the Jews, were considered so unspiritual that even bring, being in their presence, they believed could make you ceremonially unclean. So they'd go home. Uh, John chapter 18, verse 28 talks about that, where they'd have to go home and wash themselves because they were around a Gentile um, and stuff like that. Uh, much of Jesus's ministry, however, and, and this is something I really want you to note, uh, much of Jesus's ministry involved turning expectations and prejudices on their head. You, you see that in so many of the stories of the Bible where Jesus kind of takes what is expected and does the opposite. A great example of that is John chapter four, the woman at the well, who was probably a prostitute according to you know, tradition. And, um, and she was a woman who was of ill repute. She had five husbands. The guy she was living with was not her husband. We know all this stuff about the story, but Jesus was respectful to this Samaritan woman. That was against all cultural things. And Jesus is one who went against that cultural thing in almost all the Bible stories, except for this one. Why does Jesus sort of t- treat the Syrophoenician woman in a way that you'd almost expected you to tr- treat a Syrophoenician woman? And for some of us, it's a little troubling at first. You're kind of like, well, the first thing I want to say is she do- he doesn't refer to the dog in this case as the kwan the street dog, he uses a different term. And this is the term Portlandia people would use for their doggies in the Greek. Uh, the Greek word is uh, kainir, uh, kainarian, where we kind of get our word um, canine. It's, it's linked loosely to that. But that's, the, the Greek word there is house dog or the form suggests a small domestic pet. So like a little, little fluffy in your house or whatever. Uh, and, and that's the dog that Jesus refers to. And the reason I point that out is um, the other one, the the word kwan could be misconstrued even as racism, if Jesus were to use that word. He did not use that word. He used this other word, which would never have been misunderstood as being a purposeful insult to the woman. And I think that's kind of important to know um, because uh, you can look it up if you want. Don't just take my word for it. But um, this completely different word, is not meant to be as much of an insult, but thankfully the Lord uh, loves all of us and He even loves this woman. And we're gonna see how the story turns out uh, where He's gonna take care of her. And I believe the Lord loves us, and I also believe the Lord loves doggies uh, and all that. Uh, I didn't say anything about cats, but um, <laughs> uh, hey, uh, people always ask me, Brad, are our pets gonna be in heaven? And, and I say, well, dogs are. What about cats? I think they are gonna be in heaven because there's harps in heaven. Um, anyway, <laughs> I love it, all the cat people are out there, you know. Um, yeah, because, you know, they use cat gut for harp strings. If you didn't know that, um, anyway, just just <laughs> now the cat people are really mad. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, the next question we have to ask is the implication of what Jesus said. Is Jesus only there for the Jews? That's kind of what he seems to say. What is Jesus saying in verse 26 when he says, Um, it is not meet to take the children's bread, speaking of the Jews, and and to cast it to the dogs, um, speaking of the Gentiles. And there again, he's using the word canarian, uh, not as much of an insulting term, but it is, in in, uh, no mixed words, Jesus is kind of seeming like he's talking about being here for the Jews. Verse 24, "Uh, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so you might wonder Um, Now, um, one of the things you need to understand about this is did Jesus come for Israel and Jews only? This is where the modern church gets it wrong all the time because there's a lot of the church today that has the wrong teaching of replacement theology that God has done with the Jews and now he's only working with the church. Um, And they make this argument, but Jesus... Um, he came first for the Jew. In fact, uh, it's always amazing to me how people um, kind of forget or at least even miss uh, some of the most important uh, things of the Bible. Like for example, Romans 1.16, jot this down in your notes, where it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God and to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek or the Gentile." To the Jew first, what does that mean? Jesus came first for the Jews. It's an order of precedent and priority. Jesus would be called the Messiah, which means king. And that means he was the king of the Jews. So Jesus is saying something that's really true here, but this poor woman's thinking, well, then what am I? If I'm not a Jew, are you not gonna help me? Jesus well, I'm here for the Jews, which is true. But see, you and I, we have a better perspective because we have the whole rest of the New Testament where the Lord later would say, there's neither Jew nor Greek. He's gonna, he's gonna come and be the king of the Jews, but the, what's gonna happen to the Gentiles? They'll be, here's the language of the book of Romans, they'll be grafted into the vine. That is, the Jews are the vine and we're gonna be grafted in. Um, Romans chapter 11 uh, tells us uh, Gentiles how not to be arrogant. He says in Romans 11:25, 25, he says, "'For I would not, brethren, "'that you should be ignorant of this mystery.'" Um, By the way, whenever you see the Bible say that you shouldn't be ignorant of something, you'll be shocked at how the church is shockingly ignorant about the very things the Bible says don't be ignorant about. This is one of them. Don't be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own conceits. Don't be ignorant lest you be arrogant. That's really what this is saying. That blindness in part has happened to Israel uh, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. You see, um, uh, we, we, you and I know that God's gonna save not only the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. But that hasn't happened yet. Jesus came and the, even the disciples were like, what are we doing up here with this stupid Syrophoenician woman? Like in their mind, there was no room for her. And there was no doctrine really that, that they could lean on to say, well, Jesus cares for her too. So we see the disciples saying, yeah, get this woman out of here, Jesus, she's annoying. Don't you wonder what kind of woman this was? Um, because you get a sense, and, and as a pastor you know, of years, you kind of, you, you know, I, I'm a person who generally likes, I, I, I like a lot of people. Um, but once in a while you meet someone, you're just kind of like, oh boy, here they come. You know what I'm talking about. I'm just confessing, it's true. Um, There's annoying people. Um, And, you know, it's kind of like there's a word now for that. Uh, And I feel bad for the ladies named Karen today because there's a lot of Karens that popped out of the coronavirus day and stuff. And and Karen is this derogatory term uh, that now is kind of like, well, that's an annoying person. Well, this is, I wonder if she was kind of like that, where the disciples are like, are you kidding? Get this woman out of here. Like, that's what they pretty much say. And it's almost like the disciples are assuming, of course, Jesus wants her out of here, this annoying person. And then you see Jesus' response and you go, well, it does kind of seems like he's ignoring her. But before we get too uh, freaked out about Jesus' treatment of the woman, did Jesus know how the story was gonna turn out? Um, there are many times in the Bible where Jesus put people through a little bit of a ringer so that they might be able to express faith. Do you remember um, you know, John chapter four, the woman at the well I mentioned earlier, um, you know, she, he's talking with her and the more she's, she's starting to discern, this is more than just some dude. This is like a prophet, she thinks. And then Jesus says, go and get your husband. I don't have a husband. And Jesus says something because he already knows the story. He says, listen, um, you've spoken well. He didn't say liar. He could have said that and that would have been accurate. He didn't say liar. He said, you've spoken well that you don't have a husband because you've had five husbands and the one you're with right now is not your husband. Now, why did Jesus do that? Just to condemn her? No, but she says, she runs into town and she starts telling me, I met the one who told me everything I ever did. Um, And I'm sure all the men in town are going, everything? (laughs) Did did, did he tell you everything? Um, And so all the people in town come, like this woman becomes a billboard for Jesus, which is kind of cool. But Jesus knew how he was gonna work through that with that woman at the well to where she'd ultimately be saved. I think in the same way, Jesus is giving her sort of a seemingly cold shoulder that she's gonna have an opportunity to expe- express faith on the next level, next level great faith, um, even though Jesus seems to be being sort of cold toward her. And so let's take a little closer look at some of the observations of the story. And if you, can, if you wanna jot them down, you can, or if you have a steel trap mind, you can remember um, these things. But number one, let's think about her predicament. Uh, verse 22 It kind of sums it up, if you ask me, when it says she's a a woman of Canaan uh, that uh, came out of the coast, um, you know, uh, and her daughter's possessed by a demon. This is very common in Bible times, and and it's still common today in the world. Just why don't we see it as much in America? Um, I think we often misdiagnose demon possession as other things in our culture. That's one problem. Um, a lot of our demon-possessed, I think, a lot of them are intense, uh, homeless with uh, fentanyl, and uh, like people say, well, that's just the drugs, or that's they're just meth addicts. I think there's demonic stuff going on with all that. By the way, in the Bible, the the dark occult and darkness and evil is associated with a Greek word called pharmakia, where we get our word pharmacy. Don't be shocked that drugs and demon stuff goes hand in hand. It always does, always has. But another reason I don't think we see demon possession as much as some other places in the world is because of our godly heritage. I think our nation started out, whether you like it or not, and you say, Brett, I had college classes that told me that there were no Christians in the founding fathers." You've been sold a bill of goods. There's written down evidence of all of these founders that wrote amazing things about their faith in Christ, not just you know, um, you know, uh, some power, uh, you know, like uh, 12-step program, whatever power you think, you know, providence or whatever. These guys believed in Jesus, they were Christians. George Washington said, as soon as America ceases to be a Christian nation, and his, read his farewell address, read George Washington's farewell address, uh, you'll be kind of shocked. They don't read that in college classes anymore because it's too Christian. But I think because of that origin and the revival that took place during the Enlightenment period and the Jonathan Edwards era and some of that, I think a lot of that demonic stuff was kind of curtailed here in America because of that. Now we've opened the door to demonic stuff, I'm gonna say in the last 20 years, like no other time in history. Don't be shocked if we see more of that uh, because of our behavior. But in much of the Bible times and in other places of the world, common, very common, very real, demon possession. Um, now, one of the things about uh, that is I, I need to say, um, even as the United States founded on godly principles has kept the darkness away a little bit, I think that's true of the believer as well. When you're a Christian, um, you have the light of God, the light of Christ in you. And where there's light, there can be no darkness. Remember what First John 1, 5 says, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declared to you that God is light and in him, is no darkness at all. And Paul would argue, how can light coexist with darkness? And the idea is it can't. Now, um, we've already kind of established this poor woman has three strikes against her uh, right out of the gate. Um, The first strike is that she was a woman. The second strike is that she's a Gentile. And the third strike is she's a Canaanite. These are all things that the Jewish, typical Jewish men would have said, yeah, this is about the worst person you could ever imagine right here. But I, I love it that Jesus actually has a plan to allow this woman to confess her faith, even though she's seemingly getting the cold shoulder. Now, that's, that's the thing. The first thing we see is her predicament, a woman, Gentile, Canaanite, trying to talk to a Jew to get some help. That's, that's a predicament with her daughter being possessed. But let's take a look now at her plan. It seems that she came with a plan, and this is kind of laughable if you think about it for a few seconds. Um, what was her plan? Um, and why did Jesus seem to ignore her, especially in her first approach? And what was her pr- first approach? Well, that's, that's where she says there in verse 22, you know, she comes to him, cried out and saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Now, the question is, where does a Syrophoenician woman come up with extreme Jewish language like that? You understand? Somebody saying, thou son of David, we're impressed when a Jewish guy knows enough to say that. Do you remember the last time we saw that? Um, We read that in Matthew with the two blind men there in Matthew 9, 27, when Jesus departed, two blind men followed him crying saying, thou son of David, have mercy on us. Do you remember that? And we, we talked about that in our study. When a Jew says, thou son of David, they're acknowledging that that's their Messiah. Um, the, 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 the Messiah of the Jews is, is, um, is, is there. And it was an expression for a Jew there to have great faith. So where does this woman that lives up in Lebanon get this idea of Jesus, thou son of David? I think if you piece it together, she's saying what she heard was said as sort of an incantation if I say what those guys have said, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me, then I will be healed because it's sort of like abracadabra or you know some incantation or some saying that sort of ignites Jesus's power. But this is not a Jewish woman. She, she doesn't know the son of David thing. Why is she saying it? Um, she's She's sort of being kind of a poser, it seems like here. Do you know what a poser is? Um, It's like the the guy in a lifted four by four with a cowboy hat on and he's on his way to Bushwhackers in Tualatin. The truck's never touched anything but pavement. Um, He's never touched a cow, let alone rode a horse, but he thinks he's the real deal because he's watched a series called Yellowstone. (laughs) Um, That's what a poser is. Um, it's pretty funny because I grew up in a a little small community of ranchers and farmers and cowboys that were real and they would have beat him up every time Uh, I don't care who he was Um, but that's just the difference But, but in the same way what's a Syrophoenician woman going around saying Jesus thou son of David have mercy on me and Jesus just walks as if he ignores her And the reason I think this is kind of important for us is to remember there's no magic formula that we can say or incantation or holy line or speaking in King James English that somehow gets God's attention. And I think that maybe, I wouldn't die on this battlefield, by the way. I'm just suggesting, what is a Syrophoenician Gentile woman that lives in Lebanon saying, Jesus, thou son of David for? It really doesn't mean anything to a Gentile. Why is she saying that? And, and it might be part of the reason why Jesus is ignoring her. I wonder if the Lord ignores us when we use little magical incantations and canned spiritual phrases and even canned prayers. Reminds me of the story of the hunter who took, played hooky on a Sunday morning and went hunting. Um, And he was out there feeling a little guilty, but he was still, you know, thinking, at least I'm out in the woods hunting on a Sunday morning. And he went to a little creek there and was splashing water, getting a little drink. And then he saw in the reflection of the creek right behind him, a giant grizzly bear standing on its hind feet right behind him. And he thought, oh no, Lord, this is my punishment for skipping church. And he prayed, oh Lord, please make this a Christian bear. And he turned around and the bear dropped to its knees and folded its paws and said, God is good. God is great. We thank you for the food. Amen. <laughs> little canned prayers. I hope you're not teaching your children to, to pray little canned prayers because uh, I'm not sure those are really good prayers. I think we need to pray prayers that are thoughtful. We did this when we talked about um, the Lord's Prayer uh, back earlier in our study. So we see her predicament. She's a Greek, or, you know, a Gentile woman from, uh, that's a Canaanite who's got a demon-possessed daughter. That's her predicament. Her plan was to go and say this magical saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. The same sayings that other people had said to get healed from leprosy and blindness. And now she's just reciting this sort of thing, hoping, hope, hoping that it would be helped. And so she's, now we see the third problem, or the third thing about her, her situation is the problem. Now she's got a problem because she used her magical saying, but nothing happens. And so really, uh, let's take a look. She has a few problems that I think sometimes you and I can have if we're not careful. The, the three main problems is the saying that she uh, practiced isn't working on Jesus. The disciples now are trying to get rid of her. Um, she's she's annoying the disciples. Um, and, and you know what's interesting? Um, you know, Jesus isn't done with this woman. And we know that because we know the whole story now. But do we ever think someone's getting what they deserve when in reality Jesus or the Lord wants to help them? I think sometimes like these disciples, like tough bananas woman, that you're, you probably deserve it that your daughter's demon possessed because you're a Syrophoenician woman, Canaanite. Your, your daughter's probably possessed because you were you know, doing evil things in your home and you probably deserve it. Like the disciples are almost disgusted with this woman, but Jesus is not done with this woman. That's kind of an important thing. Um, and sometimes I think we, um, we push people away because we think, well, they're getting what they deserve or they made their own bed, so they got to sleep in it. I think sometimes Christians have that mentality about speaking of the homeless. Well, you know, they won't work, so they're living in a tent doing meth or fentanyl or whatever, and we just dismiss it. Well, they're getting what they deserve. But that's not ever the heart of the Lord. The disciples make this mistake here. And I think the disciples made this mistake in other places, even when the little children, remember the little children in Luke 18? They brought unto him infants that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them, but called them unto him, Jesus called them unto him and said, suffer the little children to come unto me. For you uh, that don't understand this, Jesus wasn't saying make the little children suffer. That's not what he was saying. The word suffer here means allow the little children to come unto me. Uh, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Now herein lies a secret that you need to see. This is more plainly said in this story, where you gotta become like a little child to enter the kingdom of God. You guys have all, many of you have heard that before. That's not new to you but I wonder if the same thing where the disciples are pushing away the Syrophoenician woman and they're saying, get this woman out of here. I wonder if there's something like that tucked in this story where you must become like the Syrophoenician woman to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Huh, what? Well, just keep that tucked away for a second because we see that whenever the disciples are pushing away people, they're the same people Jesus wants to draw near to them and help. Uh, the disciples are more confused because Jesus seems to be giving her the cold shoulder. But back to this poor woman's problems, problem number three, she doesn't think Jesus is there to save her. That, that he, she starts to wonder, well, I guess he's not gonna help me. Um, and Jesus is not, listen to this, he's not disrespecting her, but he's developing her. That's what's happening here. Jesus is not disrespecting this woman. He's allowing her through this process to be developed. Um, And sometimes I think that's what the Lord's doing with us. He allows us to be in a predicament and our plans that have failed and our problems stack up. And the Lord's saying, I'm going to use that to get you into a mindset that you need to be, that you need to have. And that's where we move on to the next thing about, we we observe the next part of the story is her persistence. You got to love this woman's willingness just to keep pressing, even though, the disciples are saying, get this lady out of here. And Jesus seems to be ignoring her, not disrespecting, but he's wanting to develop her. But we see her persistence. And how does she persist? I love what happens in verse 25. This is where you get a sense of the desperation of this poor woman. It says in verse 25, then she came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. Um, You know, this was the non-rehearsed line. She just cries out, oh Lord, help me. Sometimes I think the more powerful prayer is not, Lord creator and sustainer of all things. Like you're thinking, okay, now I've got the Lord's attention because I use some King James language. No, the cry out, Lord save me, ah! Like, like I think the Lord hears that prayer better. A heartfelt scream of fear uh, can, can, can actually help. Do you remember the story of Luke chapter 18 of the woman and the unjust judge? And she came to the judge and tried to get you know her, her uh, complaint heard. But the unjust judge said, yeah, get her out of here, whatever. But she kept persisting over and over and over. And then the unjust judge finally gives in and gets, because he, he was so annoyed by this woman who kept persisting that he finally gave her what she wanted. And then Jesus in Luke chapter 16 concluded saying, and the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night to him? Though he bear long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he shall uh, shall he find faith on the earth. Um, this is an example of persistence pays. The Lord wants us to keep coming. And by the way, when it, the Bible talks about knock and seek and ask, um, you know, knock and and the door will be open. Uh, the Bible, the tense and the voice and the mood there is kind of important. It's to keep knocking to keep asking and to keep seeking. That's one of the things the Bible is teaching. And so this is persistence. Daniel fasted and prayed for 21 days. And you remember what happened? There was an angel that was gonna give Daniel one of the greatest prophecies of all the Bible, but he was being withstood by another demonic angel. And um, Daniel fasts and prays there in Daniel chapter 10 verse two for three weeks, 21 days. And on the 21st day, the angel shows up and says, man, I was being withheld. But because Daniel was praying and fasting and persisted, the the, the angel made it eventually. Persistence is something that's in in the Bible. So we see her persistency, that's an important part. So her predicament, her plan, her problem, her persistency, but now we dive into this um, notion of her passion. And that's verse 27. Notice with me um, the the sort of the parts of her passion that we see that are kind of cool. The first one is that she worshiped him. The word worship, you might wanna mark that in your Bible there in verse 25 when it says that she came and worshiped him. Um, The word worship is a great uh, word in the Greek. It's proskuneo, um, which means to kiss. In fact, some uh, word dictionaries talk about how it means to turn and kiss. But it means to kiss the hand of or toward one and kiss in a token of reverence. That's this word proskuneo, Um, It also uh, means uh, you know, to fall on your knees, touch the ground with your forehead to the dirt as an expression of profound reverence. This is what she does. She just falls down, Lord help me. And she falls down and worships him. Um, You gotta love this about this woman. And she cries out to him. Um, And I love this because this is something that Paul would later uh, reinforce that anyone who will call on the name of the Lord Jesus, will be heard by the Lord. Anybody who truly calls, it's Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. For there is no difference between Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this woman is no exception, the Syrophoenician woman. So she cries out. But then I also wanna point out something that's kind of shocking, is she also shows a a real humility. And she does this, you know, because the the you know the the Gentiles were used to being sort of hated by Jews, but do you notice what she does when Jesus says it's not meat or it's not uh, right for us to take the children's meat and throw it to the dogs, the, the the pet at the foot of the table? That's not right to do that. But then she says in verse twenty-seven, and this is where Jesus totally changes, does a one-eighty in his treatment of this woman. It's after verse. What happens in verse twenty-seven? that makes Jesus suddenly light up and say, you know, great is your faith. Why does he say that? It has to do with her humility. She's saying, pretty much if you would, I'm a dog. You got that right. Did you see that? Because Jesus says, you know, it's not me to take the meat and uh, you know, it's not good to take the food and throw it to the dogs. And she said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs, she's talking about herself, eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. What this woman is doing is in a heart of humility and acknowledging that she is a woman of great need, that she is, in fact. She's, she's not denying that she is in a situation of great peril and great trouble. Um, you know, this woman cries out in humility and she agrees uh, that, that she is exactly that, a dog. Well, who does that, Brett? Well, hopefully all of us. You see, when I asked the question about the children and Jesus saying, you must become like one of these in order to enter the kingdom of heaven about the children, same people that the disciples were pushing away, the children, the disciples were pushing away this woman, but you know what's funny? You and I have to do the same thing she does. And this is where the entitled culture doesn't like this. You and I, we miss this well, I'm a good person and people like me and I, I look at what I have done and look at my accomplishments, but we forget that we're just wretched, miserable sinners who've done nothing and, and we wouldn't even be breathing if it wasn't for the grace of the Lord. And we deserve nothing and we're the dog in the story and, and, and it's hard for us. I'm not a dog. Some of you might even be resisting the story because you're like, I don't like you calling me a wretch. Call yourself that, Brett. We used to sing the hymn and we knew what it meant. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We don't even know what the word wretch means anymore, but it's about as worse of a word as you could use for yourself. Uh, bad, a bad description, but that's what this woman is saying. She's understanding even the wretch gets the crumbs. And Jesus is, is... See, this woman's so far in advance of the disciples. The disciples don't even know that they're gonna be saved by Jesus on the cross. But this woman seems to have an understanding that it's not just gonna be to the Jews, but she, even she, because of who Jesus is, she knew she could ask help of him and even be a Jew, uh, a Gentile, uh, Canaanite woman. She even knew that there was still a place where Jesus would be kind to her. And that's when he says, so great a faith. Um, she acknowledged something that would ultimately... Now, you and I, we read the rest of the New Testament, we go, of course the Gentiles are part of the church. And in fact, we actually see Jesus in some ways clearer than the Jews do right now. Um, and 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 then the Jews are gonna see the, the, the Lord as the Messiah someday. And the Lord still has a plan for the Jews. But right now, the, the Gentile, like we see that now. We all assume, of course, the Gentiles are saved. But this woman is one of the first people <clears throat> that acknowledged, <clears throat> excuse me, that Jesus was going to uh, even minister to the dog. She humbled herself. You know, um, I, I wonder, you know, one thing I love about this story, as we kind of start to wrap this up, is um, these, these noteworthy things that this woman has, the, the last thing that Jesus acknowledges is she had so great a faith. And it was expressed in a time of, of crying out and falling down and worshiping and saying, but Lord, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs." And, and, and Jesus just, it's like he, 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 right then he just acknowledges that confession. And it was like a confession of faith. And that's why he said, so great a faith. Um, you know, that, that's what I hope you and I are doing. I hope you and I are careful because as an entitled bunch of people who think we deserve salvation, Lord, of course you saved me. Of course you chose me because I'm, I'm actually, pretty, compared to everybody else, I'm actually pretty much better than everybody else. Like that's the entitled, self-absorbed, self-esteem to our minds are blown uh, culture that we live in. But if we really get down to it and get honest, man, to be broken before the Lord and repentant and humble, to come into church on a Sunday like this, uh, Saturday night or Sunday morning like this and say, we're just gonna worship out of just sheer love for the Lord and what he's done to us because we're so humbled that he saved a wretch like me. Like, have we become more mechanical? Or have we lost that passion? I love this woman because she is a woman who's a Gentile Canaanite woman, but she passionately comes and worships Jesus. And she confesses sort of a faith that even Jesus says, so great a faith. He, 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 he acknowledges that. Um, I worry that we've become so chilly. We come to church and we're distracted and we're doing other things. Years ago, I got a letter from a lady uh, that said this, hello, Pastor Brett. I am a regular athe Creeker and I saw something unusual today during the service that I thought I should share with you. There was a younger guy sitting in front of me studying for a bartender's test. I saw him sitting there studying different kinds of cocktails and drinks during the majority of the sermon. Um, and then he took communion afterward. Uh, I've been going to church regularly for about 12 years. I'm no legalist, but I thought this was rather odd. And then she went on to kind of ask, "What should I think about all that? like how do I deal with that?" And um, I answered, "I have no idea i 'm confused too uh, no i didn't i didn't say that <clears throat> but But I do worry that you know we are so distracted you know we uh, the stories I hear of what's happening in services, people are on their iPads looking up real estate in Florida and, and they're you know, busy during sermons or during worship. People are sitting there slouching in the back with a hood over their head, you know, uh, sleeping and then waiting for church to be over. It's like, why are you even here? Like, like if you're not careful, you're actually count, that's count, gonna count against you in the eternal picture. It'd be better for you to stay at home and get get sleep rather than come and like show disrespect to the Lord and uh, blow off His word. Like I'm just saying, uh, there's a lot of people. You know, if you're the one clipping your toenails back and leaving a nice pile in the back of the service, um, you know, like repent. Uh, You know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But, but uh, you know sometimes I see sort of this laissez-faire attitude within Christians, like, oh yeah, we're going to church today. We're kind of doing our thing. But I love this, this woman who's got this passion, crying out, humble, and expressing great faith. Um, you know, I, I worry about that admonition to the Laodiceans. Remember the Laodiceans? They were the lukewarm church, and Jesus calls them out in uh, Revelation 3. Uh, and by the way, the Laodicean churches a church marks the churches in America. Like we, we could be put in the Laodicean category if you ask me. Jesus says, I know your works that thou art neither hot or cold. I would that thou were cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew, literally vomit you out of my mouth. That's what the Lord says. So a routine with the Lord is not a relationship with the Lord. Um, I hope you understand that. Um, and Jesus sort of helped this woman um, when she kind of comes with her little practice saying, oh, Jesus, our son of David, blah, 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 blah. And Jesus just kind of kept walking. And then he starts getting to the crux of the matter and about how he's there to work with the Jews. But then she reasons and says, but even the, 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 the dogs get crumbs from the table of the master. And that's when Jesus, like he, he was able to sort of pull that response out of her And that's where we saw her passion, where she fell down and worshiped and spoke that great word of faith. Um, I wonder if the Lord allows problems in your life so that you, and Jesus will sort of passively say, yeah, I'm gonna let that stuff happen. Yeah, but why has it happened to me, Lord? Maybe he's wanting to get you to where you're once again passionate about the Lord. One thing that's kind of funny about this story, do you almost get a sense that the poor girl in the story, remember the, the daughter of this woman is almost like an afterthought. The demon-possessed girl, because that's why she's there. My daughter's possessed with a demon. Can you help her? Um, But it's almost like Jesus is more concerned about the woman that's right in front of him than the girl that's possessed with a demon. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus delivers the girl possessed with a demon. But I almost wonder if sometimes the very things that we see as the biggest problems in our lives aren't really the problem. That problem will be fixed if you fix your relationship with the Lord. Uh, just like this poor woman, her daughter was fixed once she got fixed, once she realized that she really needed to trust in this guy, Jesus, and not just have some mathematical relationship with with the Lord. Could this be why there's people that believe they're Christians, but they'll stand before the Lord someday and, and hear these horrifying words of Matthew 7, 21? Not one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. There's gonna be people that thought they knew the Lord, but they didn't really know intimately, personally, practically the Lord himself. Watch out for that. Don't be the believer or the Christian who says, I believe in God and I'm at church checking the box. I'm here, Brett. No, the Lord wants to know you intimately, personally, and he wants you to have a relationship with him. And a lot of people miss that, this, and it takes passion. Can you imagine if you were married to a person and you just had a mathematical relationship? Um, you know, your spouse, you know, you just kind of say, well, hello, I'm, I'm saying hi, and I, I love you, and I'm telling you that because, well, I'm supposed to. Uh, well, that's not a real relationship. Um, there's Christians that sort of handle their faith that way. Don't be that. Uh, Jesus did a great work in this woman by drawing out of her so great a faith. It wasn't that he was ignoring her or disrespecting her. He was developing her, and he knew how this was gonna shake out. And she would go down as one of the people that Jesus said, So great a faith. That's pretty cool. I love this story. And for you to be saved, you gotta do the same exact same thing that she did. You have to humble yourself and acknowledge that you're the one who doesn't deserve it. We're the dog in the story that doesn't deserve anything, but Jesus is the one who's compassionate. If you're not a Christian, would you accept the Lord? Just repent, humble yourself, do what this woman does, and say, Lord, I need you to be the one to save me. And to cry out with truth, with passion, And he'll hear you, he'll save you. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, the Lord says, I will save you. So Lord, bless this, your people, Lord, as we have taken time in your word, we feel blessed. Lord, to be called your children. We're blessed to be washed and robed in righteousness. We're thankful for the work you've done in us. And now as we go our way, Lord, would you fill us all with joy? Bless these, your people, as we go our way tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.